Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brand. And this episode, we're discussing SST 209, the slovenly We Shoot for the Moon LP. We love slovenly on the show. It's one of those bands that we often talk about as being, you know, criminally underappreciated, perhaps a bit ahead of their time. So we always love getting into a slovenly record and brand. We've got a special guest. Yeah, man. Rob Holzman's on the show. Awesome to have Rob on. I was thinking, you know, he's had a very interesting career in general, but he's also been in two bands, Saccharin and Slovenly, with a couple of very unique lead singers too, hey? Yep. It's kind of, it's very interesting for him to have kind of found a spot in two bands that have very unique unconventional lead singer type of spot. So, I mean, just so cool to hear from Rob, and it's a great interview. Yeah. Before we get into it, Brant, why don't you hit us with some spiels? Yeah, sure. Um, so, Mojack, I guess, book club? <gasps> yeah. Do I need Do I need to get my li- library card? Yeah, probably. All right. File it in your wallet next to your uh, SWA membership card and your no means no wrong club or whatever. <laughs> ID. I still I still have my wrong ID. Yeah, I know you yeah. do. <laughs> All right. So Zhao Head, a co-founder of Swell Maps, has written the first official biography of the group called Swell Maps, 1972 to 1980. It's a hardcover book, 152 pages, full-color photos of the band, you know, flyers, etc., from his personal collection. It comes with a 7-inch with unreleased tracks. It's mm. limited to a 1,000 copies, self-published, I believe. Comes out May 27th, 2022. Wow, I bet you you're going to order that, hey? Yeah, man. Oh, yeah. Did you get the 7-inch version? I think that's the only version that... Oh, every one of the 1,000 comes with a limited edition 7-inch. I believe so. Oh, awesome. As you know, Ryan, I'm a Nikki Sutton completist, so... Yeah, Okay, Hatchet Books, Ryan, the same company that published Jim Rulin's Corporate Rock Sucks, The Rise and Fall of SST Records, uh, just announced the memoir of Kid Congo Powers, mm-hmm. written by Kid along with Chris Campion. Uh, I doubt I need to remind our listeners, uh, you know, along with an, an amazing solo career, Kid was a member of The Cramps, The Bad Seeds, and The Gun Club. Wow. So it's probably going to be pretty awesome. It's out October 18th, 2022, and it's already up as a pre-order. Yeah, that one I ordered for sure. That yeah. one's going to be great. Uh, here's a book I've been curious about for a while. I don't know where I first read about this, but it's it's getting published by Hozak Books. Uh, it's called Wicked Game, the true story of guitarist James Calvin Wiz- Walsey. Oh, from the Avengers? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I saw that too. Yeah, it's by Michael Goldberg. Uh, I'm like I said, I'm not sure where I first saw this mentioned. I feel like it was quite a while ago, though. Uh, Hozak is quickly becoming my favorite book publisher. Uh, as it says on the cover, the punk rocker who hit the big time. So James Calvin Wilsey was an early San Francisco punk kid who played with the Avengers, like you mentioned, uh, but ended up eventually as Chris Isaac's guitarist, you know, playing that haunting lead guitar on the the famous track uh, that the book is named after, Wicked Game. Ah. After he left the band in the early 90s, his life took a, you know, a pretty tragic turn, and he's since 
passed away from, you know, uh, his lifestyle, I think it would be safe to say. Mm-hmm. That one uh, is shipping in May of 2022. Uh, Die Wolf Publishing, who did the City Gardens book, along mm-hmm. with, with others, has announced, if it's Tuesday, this must be Walla Walla, the wacky history of Adrenaline OD, written Ooh. by drummer and co-founder Dave Scott Schwartzman. Should be a fun look at the early 80s New Jersey hardcore scene that they came out of. I think they toured pretty hard, too, so mm-hmm. probably some interesting tour stories. Yeah, I bet. And some wacky hijinks, perhaps? Probably. <laughs> probably, no doubt. Okay. Get it? Yeah, I get it. Okay, good. I want to make sure you got that. <laughs> the album. Yes. The AOD album. Okay, uh, Ryan, here's a reissue I need to tell you about. This is a recommend for you, for sure. Okay. The band is called Mass, and the comp is called Terminal Complete Works. This is what it looks like. Okay. Okay, there's a bunch of bands named Mass. So this is the album cover you're looking for. Okay. Early 90s British band. It's super intense, kind of goth-tinged post-punk, just of the highest order. So this has their Albini-produced single on it which came out in 1990 on Chicago label No Blow Records. Do you know No Blow? I do, yeah. Yep. Uh, it just kicks major ass, the single. It also has their phenomenal one and only full-length Rushing Flood perfume from 1991 Abstract Records. It has their final 12-inch EP called Medusa on it, also 1991 on Abstract. It has some demos including, Ryan, a totally unhinged cover of London Calling that just has really? to be heard. Yep. Wow. A second disc with a f- Peel session and a live set from Germany in 1992. It is just a fantastic release. I can't recommend it enough. My only complaint is that there is literally nothing on the band anywhere online. Uh, and although the packaging for this is just a beautiful multi-panel fold-out with all of the artwork from the various releases, there are zero liner notes. Hmm. But putting that aside, uh, Ryan, this is one for you to find and click the buy it now button. Yeah, you'll, that one sounds sounds very interesting. Oh, you'll eat it up. Yeah, it definitely sounds up my alley. It is. That no-blow label, like I know them because of tar, mm-hmm. I would say, mostly. Mm-hmm. Um so that that definitely is like something I need. Just the label alone will send me there. Yeah, you're going to love it. That's going to be my best recommend since Boot Heels, which I can't really take credit for. That was our <laughs> pal Ken. But. You were just the conduit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, what do you have, Ryan? This week, Brent, you know, I was I was kind of having a hard time thinking about what to spiel about because I was just digging so hard into the slovenly. Yeah. And... I was also, I'm getting primed for next week's episode too, but I remembered, I found a note that I wanted to spiel about this record at some point. And I remembered to do so. So I got to do it this week, but first Brent, I need you to take me to the comp zone. The comp zone. The comp zone. The comp zone. Uh, can you try not, that again? Not good can, enough. Can you try that again, please? <clears throat> The comp Excellent, excellent. All right. Well, this is a comp, and that's called Some New Ruins, the Yale New Haven Compilation. 
this is just an amazing slice of mid 80s uh, post punk jangle college rock that I found in a cutout bin way, way back that I kind of rediscovered and I started digging into it. And there's just a cool story. So I want to I want to tell you about this comp real quick because it's just awesome. It's 1986 on I period V period towers record. Get it? Ivy towers record. Okay. Um, now it has seven bands on it, but it's really pulled together by this guy, David Levine or David Levine. And I'll tell you a bit more about David in a moment here. There's a great band on here called bleached black. They've got a self-titled record that kicks ass on relativity. Again, great jangly college rock. There's a band on here called you Thant. T-H-A-N-T. This is, I can only find them on this comp, but they actually have my favorite song on this comp called Little Chlorine. Again, great 80s, jangly, college rock. Kind of sounds like Andy Kerr from No Means No on vocals in a really great way. Jim Shapiro from this band went to play drums in Veruca Salt. Mm. Another band on here called Cattle Collision. Again, only on this comp, jangly, college rock with female vocals on here not the greatest for me it's kind of it's probably you know one of the two weaker bands on here but still totally fits in on the comp another band that i do like on here called beauty constant they have a record on forehead records from 87 that is again great post-punk jangly melodic college rock uh, i think it's called like the enemy forehead records 1987 on that one then there is this band, The Raffles, R-A-F-L-E-S, also only on this comp, jangly college rock yet again, uh, but with some 60s Farfisa keys. Dave Derby from the Dam Builders is in this band, kind of sounds like R.E.M. and Elvis Costello, kind of punked up a bit. And then there's a, a hardcore band on here, it's spelled out as S-X-O-X-M-X, but it's really this band sold on murder, apparently. The hardcore band from New Haven, Connecticut. Just okay. Not the greatest. My favorite on here, though, is this band, Senator Flux, who you've probably heard of before. Yep. DC band. Charles Bennington from the band uh, was in Bloody Mannequin Orchestra, New Wet Kojak, The High Back Chairs. Jeff Turner from Grey Matter, New Wet Kojak, Three. Uh, Jeff Nelson from Minor Threat. Uh, was actually in this band at some point along the way, as I understand it. This is, they, they really seem as well, Senator Flux, kind of part of that WGNS scene. But the the lead singer, David Levine, or David Levine, he kind of started off this band with uh, the group of musicians, Senator Flux, in 85, 86. But he's also the person who put out this comp some new ruins and so I, I was rediscovering this comp really digging it it's kind of like you know remember that strum and thrum comp yeah yep, that's like what some, i was thinking yeah yeah like some of the bands on here would totally fit on strum and thrum but anyways i was trying to find out more about this comp because it it has a big thank you list on it and it mentions david uh, levine on here a number of times uh, but it doesn't really tell much about it. I'm like, is this from a radio station? Is this from like a particular college or something? Yale, New Haven compilation? Don't know. So I hit the Google machine and I found an article by David from 2014. Check this out. David has since went on to become a technology executive after 
the band Senator Flux kind of came to their logical conclusion, I guess. Um, this article is from 2014, though, and it says, How being a post-punk singer prepared me for the startup life. Okay, now okay. Listen, to, listen to this. In 1985, my sophomore year at Yale, I formed a band with my roommate and thus began my career as an entrepreneur. We named our band Senator Flux. In those days, picking your band name was equivalent to finding a domain name today. Garage, indie, college, alternative, post-punk, whatever you call it. The music scene was a training ground for the Gen X entrepreneurs who built the web of today. Do Facebook, Google, and Amazon owe more to the culture of Lou Reed and Jonathan Richmond than Bill Gates and Steve Jobs? I submit they do. Here are six experiences including a happenstance encounter with a pre-Nirvana Dave Grohl that helped me prepare me for the startup world of today. So I, w I won't read all of these, but he's making a comparison between the DIY ethos of being in a band and being like a tech startup. So check this out. Number one, Brent, bootstrapping. We decided to make a record. We needed almost a thousand bucks for the studio time mastering, vinyl pressing, and packaging. So I hitchhiked to Rainbow Gathering in Pennsylvania, bought a few sheets of acid for a hundred bucks each, and sold them back in New Haven for five dollars a tab. I now had enough for the record. Technology entrepreneurship isn't all that different. And then he kind of provides a bit of an analog for that one. Number two, though, funding. We released the record. Some New Ruins, the Yale New Haven compilation, and sent it to various fanzines and dropped off stacks with distributors in New York and Boston. In less than a month, we got a letter from a record label in Amsterdam asking if we'd record some albums for them and signed a recording contract a few weeks later. So this is Senator Flux pulling together this comp based on selling acid and getting signed. Here's number three. Screwing over the co-founder. As our sound evolved, I realized the band's co-founder and my former college roommate didn't really fit anymore. So I told him we were going to make a second record, Spectacles, Testicles, Wallet and Watch, without him. I told him just at the beginning of the summer when we were about to start recording and it was too late for him to make other plans. It might have been the right thing to do, but I did it in the worst possible way. Number four, The Road Show. After one of our music videos made it onto MTV, the band convinced me to drop out of grad school, move back to DC, and go on tour. I booked the whole thing myself, sending out CDs and press kits and working the phones with booking agents across New England, the Midwest, and Canada. We slept on a lot of floors. Number five, things change fast. For our fourth release, Story Knife, and if you haven't heard Senator Flux's records, and Story Knife in particular is one that is like, it definitely has them the most evolved, I guess. And, and, and I think some people have said Story Knife makes them sound a bit kind of mainstream. I don't know. Um, it still has parts of Senator Flux that I like on it. Here, here he says again, for our fourth release, Story Knife, we used the record company advance to build a recording studio in the basement of the band house and used it to record other DC bands for extra cash while we worked on our own songs. Dave Grohl, who grew up in Arlington, Virginia, and played with Scream before joining Nirvana, showed up at our door one day with a rough mix of Nevermind. They'd recorded the week before in L.A. He popped it into the tape deck, and we sat in the living room and listened deeply. It was really good. We had no idea it was knock Michael Jackson off the number one spot on the Billboard charts good, but it did change everything. 
When Nevermind hit, the major labels swarmed Seattle and signed everyone they could from the indie label Sub Pop. Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, and Alice in Chains became the center of the post-punk universe. We knew it was over when the New York Times was endlessly analyzing grunge as a cultural movement. DC was left in the dust. Um, And then again, all throughout, he's talking about how these situations are very much akin to the entrepreneurship, DIY ethos of a startup. I won't go through number six here, but he ends up saying at the end, venture capitalists are the major labels. NASDAQ is billboard. Startups are bands. Deja vu all over again. So I just thought it was cool to, to see how this DIY ethos kind of propelled this this uh, this guy out of Senator Flux into having that same kind of grassroots work the street and, and kind of create your own scene um, from a technology startup perspective. But also very cool to just look at all the tendrils from the bands on this comp into the DC scene that we know, like Grey Matter or Trusty. Like it's just all over this comp. So check it out if you want some jangle pop and a cool story behind this comp. Yeah, it's a great point too. I mean, like I can't relate to his, you know, to to relate it to his professional life, but because it's very different from mine. But definitely, you know, some of that DIY spirit. You don't really think about it until you sit and think about it. But you know, I've certainly done a lot of things in my quote unquote professional life myself that other people would have just not even thought of trying to do themselves yeah exactly awesome man cool spiel well are you ready to uh get into some slovenly yeah all right history lesson part one so like i said we've had slovenly on the show a number of times we unfortunately did not get a chance to go through the tracks on their new alliance records releases there's uh three before they found their way on to SST. There's the the Even So 12-inch from 84 after the original style LP, the Plug 7-inch. But then we did get a slovenly release at SST 67, the Thinking of Empire record, uh, Ripost, or Ripost from, on SST 89, where we had Tom Watson on the show. And now we're at what is sometimes held out as kind of the best slovenly record when you read up about it we shoot for the moon and man it is a great record yeah man i i loved it like you know i read a number of reviews of this record this week you know what i could find anyways on things like all music and trouser press and it got panned pretty hard uh and i'm assuming it did back in the day as well i you know i get i'm guessing there were people that did give this good reviews and stuff but uh you know the band talks about how they had a hard time finding an audience. I, I think this record's a masterpiece. You you talk about these, mm-hmm. you know, the tendency, the, the popular narrative is that SST had jumped the shark by this point. This is one I would hold out as a late period masterpiece for sure. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I would say the same for, there's a number of records that will come up yeah. that, that I would say, you know, check your head. You got to check out these ones. Oh yeah. We'll be dispelling that myth for (laughs) another hundred episodes. But like, uh, speaking of which, when we get to episode 300 and we look back on, you know, five records, when we play our game, five records that blew your mind, 
Oh yeah. The last 100 episodes, I, this one will be one of mine for sure. Oh really? I, I already so. I know what three of mine are already. Yeah. I know what they are because I mean they're they're in the 200s and they've been with me forever. So yeah. anyways, this is just a killer record. I just yeah. loved it, man. You know what? The the thing that really stands out for me on this record like the vocals i love the vocals yeah, i me mean too. i i and i know that there are a lot of ian curtis comparisons and that's that's fair but i like it for similar but completely different reasons the the double guitar combo playing on this record is just like amazing amazing layers with both of the guitarists on every song and yeah. then when they bring it together for some massive power chords it's so powerful. They're like, what's the uh, what's the Judas Priest guys? Is it something in Downey or Downing or whatever? Glenn Tipton and KK Downing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is my Tipton and Downing on this record. So there. I just I the double guitar thing. Usually I'm really keyed into the bass, and the bass playing's great on this record. But the the interplay between the guitars on this record is off the charts. Yeah, yeah. I wrote some of that in my notes when I when I was going through the tracks for sure. Yeah. So, Ryan, the band at this time is the same as it's always been. Uh, we've got mm-hmm. Scott Zeigler and Tom Watson sharing guitar and bass duties. Uh, Scott, unfortunately, passed away in 2004. On guitar and keyboards, we've got Tim Plowman. On drums, Rob Holzman. And on vocals, Steve Anderson. And then horns are credited as the Cruel Horns, an obvious reference to Cruel Frederick. Uh, that's Lynn Johnston, who we've seen on all the Slovenly albums previously, uh, along with Guy Bennett and Jacob Cohen of Cruel Frederick and also Universal Congress of. Yeah. A, uh, a piece that I'll be referencing throughout uh, the episode, Ryan, is a, a Dave Lang article mm-hmm. from the Perfect Sound Forever blog. Uh, speaking of, you know, the band trying to find an audience, Dave asks Slovenly in that piece if you know, if they sold any records back in the day. And Tom says, a lot of their records went straight to cutout bins. We never recouped our expenses, according to SST, and I believe it. Tom says, the only way for us to make money was to play gigs. The Minutemen were our saviors on many occasions. I think we were a really hard band to book because we didn't fit into any type of scene for the most part. Usually the only people who liked us were in the other bands, not the audience, Mm -hmm. with the exception of some rare and very appreciative individuals. So in that interview, he talks to uh, Tom, Steve, Rob, and Tim, and uh, this is kind of what they had to say about the making of this record. Tom says, by this point, we had toured a couple of times with Firehose, and we had a pretty regular practice schedule. It was us at our most competent at playing and writing. After doing a few records, we were more comfortable in the studio. We approached We Shoot for the Moon differently from the other records. We practiced the hell out of it before recording it. We were working with Vetus again, and it was good to be in Los Angeles to focus on it completely. They were living in San Francisco at this time. Right. For one thing, we wanted the songs to bleed into each other. No real stops between the tunes. So we'll we'll elaborate on that a little bit when we go through Mm -hmm. the tracks. Mm Mm-hmm. Tim says, this is my favorite record we did. Love that record. It's punchy, loose, with a lot of energy. We had come off a couple of tours and the band was really playing well together. The writing and the practices leading up to the record were kind of fragmented, which was not the way we usually ramped up for making a record. 
I don't think we played any of the songs at shows leading up to the record, which was also unusual. We kind of finished them in the studio. I remember working the songs out in small groups and kind of roughly having things together by the time we went into the studio. It was kind of a weird time. There were a lot of dedications in the liner notes for friends who had died in the lead up to making the record. I think we were also sort of uncertain of where the band was going. We recorded at Vitas Matare's Lyceum Sound Studios in West LA. Great studio, great location, great producer. I remember we were drinking a ton during the making of that record. Some strange asparagus-flavored beer we got at Trader Joe's. (laughs) I'm not sure I would want to try that, but... No, no, gosh. I barely want to eat asparagus (laughs) just in its vegetable form. Did we mention, too, I mean, Vitas plays some keys and maracas on this record, too, hey? Yeah, he does, yep. Okay. Uh, I think we stopped at Trader Joe's every morning on our way into the studio. I think we kind of evolved our guitar sound at that point. Tom was playing his mid-60s Telecaster through a Supro for at least some of the songs on the record. Mm-hmm. I was playing a Jazzmaster through Super Reverb. Scott was playing his modified 1960s Epiphone. Dan Electros were also involved. Vetus encouraged us to really drive the amps, and his room had a pretty live sound already, as I recall. I also think Tom started to take a bigger role in production on this record. So some of the sound may be attributed to his approach. I remember listening to a final playback and John Talley Jones of the Urinals was in the room and said that this was our white album. I think that was probably the most fun we had making our record. I don't recall how this record was received. I think it was pretty much ignored because we had stopped touring at that point. I don't think we did much to support it. And then Steve says... It was a fun record, the best collaboration between Slovenly and engineer Vitas Matare. It was superb. Mm. Maybe we should kick it over to the interview, Ryan. Yeah, man. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Rob Holzman. Rob, thanks for being on the show. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks, Brad. Right on. Okay, so going back a ways, when did you first start playing drums? Graduating high school era, I'd say about, uh, well, I had to be in high school because I remember we did play at my high school. So I'm thinking my junior, senior year, I started playing drums, uh, influenced by Tom Watson and Bruce Lawson, who you may have heard was a drummer for Toxic Shock and Slovenly before I joined. I didn't know he was in Slovenly before you. Okay, so when you say you played at your high school, who are you talking about? I played with the Jetsons, actually. That was with uh, Earl Liberty, Mark Vidal, and Tom Watson, Dennis Jarvis, who was uh, surfboard uh, seller and surfed great, actually, around Hermosa Beach. So, yeah, we did that band for a few years, a couple of years. And then Tom and Steve Anderson started veering into punk rock with, along with Bruce Lawson. Scott Ziegler, and they were Toxic Shock, and they turned it into Slovenly Peter mm-hmm. at some point. Okay, what kind of band was the Jetsons? Oh, we did covers. We did uh, Devo covers, Clemsoles, 
Um, we did have our own songs as well, originals. We did do some like ska type originals, kind of new wavy. Mm-hmm. We were mostly like a new wavy beach party band playing uh, house parties. I think we had one. Yeah, I do remember now. It's coming to my memory. In King Harbor, we did a show, and it turned out that we got shut down. We were too loud. <laughs> I guess you know it was a uh, it was at some some Marina Harbor in Redondo Beach, and the, I don't know, the atmosphere was kind of, they couldn't handle it. Mm-hmm. And we weren't punk rock or anything crazy. We didn't, nobody dressed or looked different. You know, we were just kind of surfer type, you know, partier types. Right. Okay, so all these guys, Earl, Steve, Tom, Bruce, uh, Scott, did you, were you all, did you all go to the same high school? Yes, we did. We all went to Maricosa High School. Okay, so the Jetsons were kind of well. You said you were playing Devo and Plimsoll, so not pre, not pre punk. From what I remember, Scott and Steve were more leaning towards the punk rock uh, edge of music at that time. You know, newer music coming out around that time, late seventies, early eighties. By the time you joined Saccharin Trust, I believe it was you and Tom and Bruce went to see them went to see them play and you you knew they were looking for a drummer i think at the time yeah no i didn't go see them play i those guys did a gig see i'm i'm, I'm kind of speaking slowly because as as i'm talking my memory's starting to kick in right <laughs> <laughs> that's why i'm talking fair, kinda, fair I'm enough nervous, nervous like <laughs> okay they did a show toxic shock did a show with the minutemen in san pedro at capone's so they knew about Sacker Trust before I did. And I was hanging around slovenly. It's kind of like a roadie, and I was interested in the drums, but I wasn't drumming just yet. You know, going to their shows, helping them out, partying with them, you know, and whatnot. And um, I remember asking Steve or Bruce if they know of any punk bands that need a drummer. Because I wasn't really doing anything at the time, you know. And I just started playing drums. Mm, yeah, this was, Jetsons fell apart. Okay, now it's coming back. Jetsons kind of fell apart. People went separate ways, except for, you know, Tom and I. The singer went a different way. Earl kind of hung out with me a little bit. Yeah, uh, they did the show at Capone's in Sacra, and they told me about Sacra needed a band. I went to a gig at the Polish Hall, and Joe and Jack were there, and I, I had no idea they were there. And then someone pointed them out to me, either Steve or Bruce or Scott, and I went up and started talking to them, and the uh, they asked me if uh, they, wa- they wanted me to try out, and I tried out and got the gig pretty quickly, actually. Mm-hmm. Earl was with me the whole time. He hung out with me at all the early practices with Sacred Trust. And I think pretty early on, you're on the road with Black Flag. That must have been really something to <laughs> get right into. Yes, yes, you are, you are so correct. I thought it was uh, it was pretty trippy. That we're practicing one night at the Star Theater, and Black Flag shows up, and they come walking down the, you know, where the seats are supposed to be, the, the hill, whatever you want to call it. They're checking us out. I'm getting a little nervous, and they're talking to Jack. They already knew Jack and Joe. I didn't know anybody. First time I ever met Dez, Spot, Greg, Chuck, Robo, and I think they saw like maybe two or three songs, and then a short time later, maybe a week or so, I find out that they want us to record and then shortly after that go on tour so the tours were the winter of 81 and the summer of 82 from what i remember Mm -hmm. 
with Black Flag. Why did you decide to leave Sakharin? Was it more just like you were friends with the Slovenly guys and that's, you know, where your heart was at maybe? That, yeah, that's, I'd say that's part of the reason. At the time, you know, was it 40 years ago? My thinking's a little, you know, different than it is now, obviously. And, and, and I don't think people were really appreciating Sacred Trust as much, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I was was planning to go back to school. And I think I did for a little bit, but that didn't last long. And, yeah, I went to community college for a little bit. Then uh, I built from that and just started working and hanging out with the Slovenlies more and then ended up playing drums for uh, Slovenly. Okay, so, you know, by, I think it was maybe around 84, 85, Slovenly moved, moved to San Francisco. Why San Francisco? Fell in love with the city. I, uh, I actually attempted to live up there for a couple of weeks with a girlfriend, uh, Helen, and that didn't work out. That was a quick thing, you know, two-week thing. What was that, 18, 17? And I moved back here, and then uh, Steve fell in love with the city, and Scott and the rest of us did, and we just, just decided we wanted to get out of L.A. and do something different, try something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of pretty much burned on L.A. at the same time as well. Yeah. And leading up to We Shoot for the Moon, I think was a – period of pretty heavy touring like you did a couple pretty lengthy tours i i think with Firehose. yeah the first tour i think was in 1987 it was called the haircut tour named by chuck Tukowski because of our haircuts at the time <laughs> reminded them of haircut 100 <laughs> <laughs> so that was called the haircut tour and that went i think we started midwest in denver and worked our way up towards the north, towards Seattle, and then back down the West Coast. So that was like, a, I think they were both month-long tours. And then the second one was the entire U.S. That, I think, was an uh, 89. That was the James Worthy tour. That was a fun tour. I remember that tour. We were we were pretty tight by that time and, mm-hmm. and having some really good shows. Yeah, Slavonly was pretty on fire, I thought that time i've seen the various you know band members talk about you know how the albums went straight to cutout bins and whenever we played it was the only people that liked us were the other bands i just yeah you know you mentioned you know there wasn't wasn't appreciation for saccharin at the time i'm wondering you know how that true what how true that might have been for slovenly at the time i think it was more true for slovenly i don't think people could accept uh steve's different different style of vocals mm-hmm. you know which i love yeah oh yeah and, and it goes with the mood of the music with a lot of it especially like on uh, things fall apart speaking of the album mm-hmm. we shoot for the moon yeah that, that last track or what is it i got 20 minute track almost yeah yeah, his vocals go along pretty good with that. You know, oh, yeah. Kinda, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The, like another instrument in a way. <laughs> oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, the songwriting for this album is credited to the whole band. Do you know what the process would have been like? Did Like, were you jamming a lot as a band, writing this record? Yeah, pretty much jamming. I mean, that that's how my approach to writing, I don't 
write anything down unless it's notes for songs, you know, when I need to hit a thing a certain time or, you know, remember stuff. But in those days, it was a lot of jamming and recording on a cassette deck, from what I remember, just figuring out our songs that way. Those guys did most of the writing of the song itself, and then I would come up with my part later. Or, you know, I would play, like, basic drums to it. And this is my approach with pretty much every band I've played in. It's Someone comes up with a guitar or a bass line, I play along to it, I find something I like that's comfortable, and then I try to hammer that into my head so I can memorize it really well and then add fills and rolls and whatever Mm -hmm. accents later. Uh, It was engineered by Vetus at Lyceum. Do you remember the sessions at all? Yeah, I do. Uh, He had like a separate house from his main house that was built into a, a studio and a swimming pool outside i remember that i do remember keith levine stopped by that was kind of oh. weird i didn't talk <laughs> to him or nothing but someone said hey that's keith levine i was like whoa shit hmm. uh anyway yeah as far as remembering the recording sessions that's kind of kind of hard to remember uh i know i had a kind of a nice walled off area for my drums i think we did most of the those songs i think in one or two takes just it went fairly smooth, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. The recording of that record, yeah. yeah. I loved working with Vetus, by the way. He's a great producer. Yeah, everybody says that. And his records always yeah. sound amazing. Always. Yeah. This one's no exception, for sure. It just sounds great. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a band playing live in a studio. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about these tracks, then, um, and see what you remember. So... Uh, running for public office, do you have any idea what time signature that is? It's not 4-4. Uh, no, I don't. I, I'm not really a technical time signature type guy. I just kind of play how I feel it. Mm-hmm. So like like I said earlier, like I, I try to like find a pocket of a bass line or a guitar tra- uh, lick or riff or whatever you call it and just get a groove that sounds good to it. What about the decision to go right from one song into the next the bleeding into the songs that was, that was their guys's idea i like the way it, it, it came out mm-hmm. you know i wasn't i wasn't i was fine with it either way but the way it came out i think it, it really ties each song into each other so it's just like one kind of long song or maybe even like a lamb lies down on broadway type of thing <laughs> uh the next song self-pity song here like steve's vocals just really striking and, and unusual in the perfect way but i do imagine that was a criticism the band might hear from less open-minded listeners for sure yeah i i don't know if that one was directed towards uh listeners or critics or whatnot mm-hmm. i'm not really sure about the lyrics of that song myself I just, my, my favorite parts of that song is Tom's guitar and how I play along with that and I open the hi-hat. You know, I I play along to him. Yeah. So that right there kind of shows how he's been a major influence on music on me completely. I mean, he got me into drumming and what music to listen to and to get into. So I pretty much... You know, he was my major influence on everything music. 
with Scott and Tom kind of splitting bass duties, when you listen to this, can you tell who's playing on each song? Yeah, some songs I can, and some songs I get stuck, even on other albums. So I have to kind of go and, and search for videos, live videos of up. There's not many. Mm-hmm. And to see who's playing that song or just text Tom and ask him who's playing bass on this. But <laughs> Tom, Tom's uh, more noty, I think. As with Scott, I would say is more solid, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, they're both guitar players originally, you know, how they started. Tom's just got a, a different feel. Even with Toxic Shock when Tom played bass, I mean, you could just kind of hear the his guitar playing influence in the bass playing itself, mm-hmm. you know. What was that like yeah. as a drummer, having <laughs> a revolving bass player? And seemed to work out okay because I think we we were all on the same I'd say wavelength on how we wrote music or how we came up with songs. I never really had to struggle with either Scott or Tom or whoever was on bass. You know, I felt I I think I felt more comfortable with Tom because Tom is who originally, like I've been saying, you know, got me into it. He's like my daddy on it. <laughs> yeah, like, I gotta listen to him and then I play along to it. Right, I feel more comfortable. Yeah, that's fair. The Neil Young cover "Don't Cry No Tears," you know, I'm assuming Neil was an influence on the some of the members or the, the group as a whole. Was this one you'd been doing live already? "Don't Cry No Tears." Yeah, we have. Yeah, pretty sure we we've already did the song live before we we recorded it. Yeah, because it's, it's a pretty easy song, you know, simple, simple one to cover. There, Steve's vocal must have maybe surprised some people. He really does a great job on that song. He does. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Do you remember any other, I mean, there's another cover we'll get to in a bit here, but did you do a lot of covers as a band that you maybe didn't record? Screwing around, maybe, like China Grove. From Doobie Brothers, <laughs> <laughs> we did. I, we did it in between uh, songs while someone was tuning up yeah. at the farm. I remember, <laughs> and that was a pretty crazy show. A lot, a lot of drinking. You know, not just the band, but the audience. We got everybody crazy for a few minutes by playing that. Yeah, yeah, song. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, on our own, just screwing around. If we were doing a cover, we were making fun of it, probably. Right. Right. But the, seri- the serious ones we recorded. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, talking or Talking Machines on the LP. Any idea who would be playing that slide guitar on that one? I'm picking Tim. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That's so hard. I don't know. That's a, that's a <laughs> tough question, really. Yeah. <laughs> but from what I remember, from my memory, is that him when he switched over from keyboards to guitar early on i noticed he was doing more leads taking more lead duties if you want to call it that Mm -hmm. yeah he does play keys on on the record here did he still play keyboards live with the band by that time no not not by the time we did this album Mm -hmm. early on he switched over to guitar i can't really remember what year how many years into Slovenly he did. But yeah, he eventually just was full-time on the guitar. Uh, the next one, what's it called? I assume this is so named because you can hear someone, I think Steve, ask what's it called as the song is counted in. <laughs> I think that was me. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, they make fun of me a little bit on this record. When, when we get to uh, the next song, there's a story behind it. <laughs> the title. Okay. This one, what's it called, seems like something, you know, Steve might have added his lyric and vocal to after the fact. Like it was maybe written yeah. as an intro and... I think so too. I was listening to it earlier and I was trying to guess did Anderson have his pre pre-written lyrics or did he just kind of go into it and we jammed? Cause I, th- I think this album is like our, mostly our, a jam album really. Mm-hmm. Although they are actual songs that we rehearsed, but the way it came out produced songs bleeding into each other, things fall apart. It's yes. Yeah, it's, it's more like a, Big long song moody album. Mm-hmm. This one kind of expands the horn section a little bit from just Lynn to include uh, the other Cruel Frederick guys. Less Lynn on this album than the others. Was he what like what was Lynn's status in the band at this time? He played a lot of live gigs with us and recorded almost on every record, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't recall any of the other Cruel Frederick guys playing or are they credited on the album yeah guy bennett and jacob cohen are credited on the record you know that must have happened when i wasn't there as a added adding tracks mm-hmm. so i think it was around that time or when we did repost uh i was going through some personal issues my brother was sick mm. and he ended up passing away around that time so i remember i remember we had to put off recording for like a week or two uh that's that's a bummer I'm assuming your your brother is Steve, who's uh, the album's dedicated yeah. to. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, I'm I'm sorry to 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 learn about that. Uh, thanks. Uh, this song, what's it called, ends with someone going, "I thought that one sucked, man. Erase it." Oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Either I said it or Tom. Tom <laughs> said erase it, and I think I said I. I suck because I fucked up or something. Mm. So does it sound like it says you suck? I think it says I thought that one sucked. <laughs> like the take. Oh, sucked. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. And next... they obviously thought it was good, so we used it. It's a keeper. <laughs> yep. Okay, yep. the next one. You cease to amaze me. I love how this song starts. It. You know, it starts with just what sounds like just the guitar and bass noodling on a riff, and then you just come in seemingly out of nowhere. I remember, yeah, I just I just come in with the yeah straight beats. That that's that's I remember that as like a jam thing, and then it, it turned into a song. Mm-hmm. What's the story on this one where they're having some fun at your expense? Because uh, you know, a lot of shit talking while we're in there, and. and a little bit of drinking and uh the phrase is supposed to be you never cease to amaze me right right i said you cease to amaze me and i was serious at the time <laughs> that's what i thought the phrase meant <laughs> so they got such a kick out of that they titled the song that <laughs> i told you they make fun of me <laughs> all right the next one is the title track we shoot for the moon Mm-hmm. Yeah, Steve, I've read somewhere that Steve originally had a different title for the album, for the album, and probably for this song. I can't recall it, but it was it was a bit longer. 
Yeah. Can I say what it is? Yeah, please do. We shoot for the moon and jack off in the closet. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm guessing Steve was vetoed on that one. <laughs> yeah. Okay, the other cover, the Blue Orchids cover. Any idea who would have brought that one in, A Year With No Head? I think uh, either Tim or Steve. Those guys were listening to that uh, Martin Brahma a lot at the time. Or, or Tom. Mm-hmm. Those three guys. And then Scott and I, kind of like, yeah, sure, we'll go for it. You mentioned the Spy Surf track earlier. A- any idea what Steve's lyrics are referencing in that song? No, I don't. I'm sorry, I don't. Uh, I just remember that as a fast jam song, and and it's one of my favorite, not to toot my own horn, but I like my drumming on that mm-hmm. song because yep. I, I can't believe this one drum roll I did that, <laughs> <laughs> that I don't normally do. And it's like, oh shit, I did that and kind of surprised myself. <laughs> no unlawful sex. This is an interesting one. I'm I'm assuming going back to Tom's early days of kind of tape mani- manipulation, etc. Do you have any idea how that song it, was created? Um. Well, I I my best guess is 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 Tom and Tim's experience in the Netherlands doing that mm-hmm. and. I loved it because I was a bike messenger at the time and I'd ride up and down Market Street and the, that main voice where you hear the guy preaching, I'd see him and hear him every day I'd be riding up and down the street. Hmm. So it brings back memories to me of, of being a bike messenger, which I truly enjoyed doing when I lived up there. And uh, it, it really captured a good section of market that I can, that can easily pop into my head right now if I listen to that song. <laughs> you know, right around Powell Street Market where the crazies are. And uh, the buses and just the whole downtown feeling, you know, and visual really, really comes out in me when I hear that. Okay, so that, track. yeah, <laughs> I, I wasn't sure if that was sampled from somewhere or if that was something the band actually recorded. So this, that's a, that's a guy from San Francisco, that street preacher or whatever. Yeah, no, some I don't I don't know which person in the band re- recorded it actually, but uh, the street preacher guy, yeah, okay. I, he's he's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> she was bananas. That one's that song is pretty bananas. You know, some super tight, like the way you stop on a dime halfway through and then just totally shift gears as a band. Yeah, um, Steve was playing bass on that actually. I don't know if you knew that already. Oh no! Yeah, Steve Anderson. I remember he played playing the bass track in the mixing room. I remember sitting right in front of him. This is one of the few things I remember from the session. And I was just watching him play. I was sitting on the couch. He was sitting on a stool, and he played the bass line. And he also came up with the lyrics. Uh, well, he he uh, he found a kid's homework in the street or somewhere, and on the homework there was a list of vocabulary words that these kids had to incorporate into a story. Right. So he thought it was really fun, kind of funny. And he thinks it was a girl who wrote it because she used the words banana or bananas a lot, like, you know, crazy or crazy person. Right. So, so I get, he took the whole story and ran with it. And 
I guess the, the, the musical part we practiced, you know, another jam turning into a song type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the break part, you know, we all have to work that out and where it stops on a dime, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. Any idea what the sampling is in this song? The sampling? Yeah. On Bananas? I, I can't really recall any sampling, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. That I remember hearing. You mean like his his voice is kind of in the back, like a yeah. double vocal track? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, I guess he just added that for more texture or more like spaciness on the song. I don't know. I think it, I think it came out great the way he did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I wasn't sure if that's what it was, if it was a studio trick or if it was, you know, a tape loop or something like that. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know. I think I think Tom, Tim, Tom, Tim, Tom, and Tim would be the guys to talk to about that kind of stuff, the mm-hmm. technical recording. Yeah, a warm night, actually, a pretty straightforward rocker by Slovenly's standards. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. Uh, it, it reminds me of Sarah. another reminder of San Francisco, moonlit night, walking around, kind of wasty. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it flows really smoothly. I like the drums in it. It's you know nice, easy, easy flowing song. Electro sounds like something that would have just been improvised in the studio, maybe. Um, no, I think I think Tom and Tim worked that out beforehand because I I remember hearing it at uh, practices. Oh yeah, in San Francisco. Yeah. Okay. Then we come yeah. to this crazy twenty-minute track that you mentioned called "Things Fall Apart." Uh, yeah, some... this is difficult for me to talk about because I really didn't have anything to do with it. But uh, you know, we'll listen to it later. Like I said, around that time, it was a, a rough time for me. So mm-hmm. I I was in the studio a lot. I don't think I was in the studio a lot for the mixing portion of it, and that's when I'm pretty sure they concocted this song or put it together, constructed it. Cause they, cause I know they took drum tracks from other songs. I mean, you can tell, right? Mm-hmm. You can hear other drum tracks from songs on the on in the other songs. Oh, uh, okay. I, I can't That's... really. So the little snippet in there of uh, you know, a song that sounds like it's called "Things Fall Apart." That's not an actual song that you had written that you incorporated incorporated into this. This is something they maybe created after the fact. Exactly, yes. Uh, yes. Okay. And it's like a whole side of an album, like you said. It's 20 minutes long. Yeah. Uh, what about the one song that sounds like it was recorded live, the one piece? You can hear people uh, clapping afterwards. Oh, shit. Which one? I don't know which one that is. I think I had read somewhere that there it's maybe even a Toxic Shock song. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, that is it. You're right. It is a Toxic song. Probably a part where it recorded at a party. Hmm. But is it yes, Toxic Shock right. or is it slovenly covering Toxic Shock? It was a Toxic Shock from the recording. Uh, they did a, you know, they did a couple songs for the Keats Rides a Harley compilation. Yeah. yeah. And then there was another recording session they did with unreleased tracks. So I think they might have taken it from there. I'm not 100% on that. Okay. But it, it is Toxic Shock mixed into the song. 
any idea at the end with the here we go loop de loo that it sounds like an inside joke or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess just to give it that insanity feel of it all, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Big hangover with a crazy insanity waking up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I can't really get inside of the heads of everybody. <laughs> I can come pretty close. We, we get along very well. We still do. Mm-hmm. So that's good. A few other people it was dedicated to is Paul. Yeah, Paul Gubser. Yeah, he was a friend of the band. Mm-hmm. He passed away from AIDS like uh, my brother did. It's too bad. Good guy. Big fan of Slavonly. He lived in San... He was from down here in Hermosa and he moved up to San Francisco as well. Mm-hmm. Not with the band. He was already there. And then we all used to hang out a lot. And yeah, he was a good good friend of the band's. Uh, Gus Gregory? Gus Gregory was a high school friend, yeah. I think he uh, passed away in Columbia. He was doing some humanitarian work, and some terrorists got to him. And oh, wow. Some, yeah, some crazy story like that. I don't remember the details, but it's mm-hmm. pretty bad. Yeah. And then, of course, D Boone. We know who D Boone is, and you actually played. Yes. You actually played with D Boone. I did. I, I did a jam with him and uh, Greg Ginn on bass, just screwing around in a, a global wow. uh, practice place. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a cassette recording floating floating around somewhere, but I don't know where it is. I don't have it myself. It goes on pretty long. There's some good stuff. There's some yeah. yeah weird stuff mm-hmm. lame stuff but <laughs> i'll never forget that though because yeah. those two guys were yeah big deal for me back then for sure but yeah. we were all friends too at the same time so it was it was fun to do that you know i i feel like the bulk of slovenly touring happened before this record like that you didn't tour that much after this one came out yeah yeah the james worthy tour was after repost so yeah, you're right. We did most of the touring before this record. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the artwork uh, is amazing, but it's uncredited. Do you know who did the front and back cover? Scott Ziegler did the back cover with the Myers, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure he did the front as well with the moon and the slovenly on it. Yeah, he did the Myers rum weird face picture. That's Scott art. He also did the art on Highway to Hanover. It seems like, you know, with uh, all the album credits being written on the LP label, the idea was to not have any of that on, to maybe have a double-sided album cover. I think, yeah, that's what their idea was, I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. Just to have it like there's no one side, you know. There's no side one or no side two. Yeah. Play at your own will, at your own risk. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you mentioned that there's another album still to come for Slovenly and a single as well. But I feel like this album is kind of held up by fans anyways as the band's, you know, defining statement. What do you, how do you feel about that? I, I agree with that and, and Repost as well. I think those were our two strongest albums. Because mm-hmm. uh, just, you know, the, the, the playing, the talent, the... The way the songs are are placed and put together, especially on the album, you know, we shoot for the moon, the bleeding into each other, 
that gives it, you know, more, I don't know, oomph. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, one question I have is, uh, post-Slovenly, you played in an amazing band called All- Overpass. Obviously, you weren't done playing with, uh, with Scott and Tom yet. I have it that right. uh, Overpass started when Slovenly was still together. Is that true? That is true. Scott, Tom, and I would just jam. Tim and uh, Steve weren't around. And when I think of the early, how we came up with the name, I think of Dave O'Klassen. Mm-hmm. For some reason, he was around at the time. You know Dave O, he was yep. the roadie for Black Blood. Yeah, sound guy. Yep. And uh, I don't know I don't know why his, his memory is popping into my head right now because of Overpass. But I think he liked the name or something, so we just kind of stuck with it. As, as a jam band, as we were, we weren't even thinking about recording or doing anything or touring. So we were just a jam band. We called ourselves Overpass. And, and Dave was, yeah, Overpass. That's all I remember about Dave. <laughs> but anyway, eventually, yeah, uh, when people moved or Tom moved back down here to L.A. and then I eventually had to. And then Scott did. We decided to get together and, and uh, do it again and record this time and yeah put up uh and tour tell me a little bit about scott i mean he's not he's not with us anymore what what kind of guy was was scott a very funny kind loving human and very smart intelligent always seemed to be in a good mood loved his attitude towards practicing playing you know could cheer people up just he became he became a best friend for sure and uh yeah, I, I really miss him. I think about him a lot. I was in San Francisco at the beginning of March, and I was hanging out with Steve and uh, another friend, Sam Goldman, who's played on some on a, a Slavonly single of uh, uh, We Should, uh, mm-hmm. Seeking Equilibrium. What was that? Uh, Driving Home Abernathy. And we were all uh, having memories of Scott and, you know, how awesome of a person he was. And, and his talent was just amazing. You know, and not just guitar but computers he was into technology can get into anything and when he puts his mind to it he really gets into it and just you know goes for it he's one of those guys that's great that you still keep in touch with each other yeah hopefully we'll do something soon yeah Uh, you know it's 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 rough with me being on dialysis and we all don't live in the same city so Mm -hmm. uh speaking of you know uh old friends getting back together. <laughs> you told me that last night you were jamming with Sacred. Yeah. Um, we're, I'm doing a show tomorrow night with them. Oh, wow. Megan Icons, but Earl's not doing it. We got a gig in Pedro tomorrow on D-Boom's birthday. Oh, right. Yep. Yeah. I've, I've seen the, the I've seen the flyer. Yep. Okay. Okay. Yep. I, I wasn't sure you were aware. Yeah. That's going to be a humdinger. Mm-hmm. I'm a, a little nervous because I have not been on a stage since 2018. I did a show with Dez. And, yeah, since I've been on dialysis, I, I only do, like, one-off things. I can't really commit to a full band. Right. But uh, I think this show is going to be fun. It's all about having fun, really, you know. And uh, our practices have been good. Unfortunately, Earl can't make it. Uh, he has, he's been really hammered with work. We got Steve Reed to uh, fill his place. Okay, cool. Any chance of like 
some saccharine recording or anything? Mm, it's too soon to talk about that. Uh, you know, Joe, I think we'll probably, I don't know. It's, it's all up to Biza. He's the boss of the band. So right. he didn't say anything about it these last three practices, but you know, he did kind of mention if we get asked to do more shows and, you know, I, if I'd be willing to do it, I'd say, yeah, if I can, you know, right. I'm feeling physically and yeah, but it seems to be going okay. I was, I was a little nervous at, before our first practice a couple of weeks ago and, uh, I managed to get the memory kick in, you know, it's <laughs> so a lot of it with me is memory and to do what, when, you know, hit what, when and all that. I think, I think we're going to have a good time tomorrow play really well awesome confident i know you've had your your health problems so i wish you all the best with with your health have a great have a great show tomorrow and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today well thank you for asking me and i and i uh, i like listening to your your uh your podcast and you do a great site cover stuff so well man it's it's amazing thank you i appreciate that yeah thanks for saying that all right. So great to hear from Rob. I was thinking when I looked at the dates on this record, Brent, you're probably going to get to this as well, too. But I think if I have the dates right, they would have jumped into the studio with Vetus right after the TJs were done recording Good Medicine. Hey, yeah, uh, maybe a bit before, too, because if you'll recall that the TJs. Well, I think they were maybe jamming and like working out their stuff at Vetus's place, but the recording here is july 88 and good medicine was like the month before wasn't it yeah i think so yeah yeah i don't know like so many of the albums we've heard lately this you know vetus was just cranking them out yeah yeah a weird thing about this one it was recorded in july of 88 but it was released at least according to discogs in march of 89 so Mm -hmm. quite a delay i i did ask rob and i also asked tom watson if they knew knew why it would have been delayed or remember that it was delayed and neither of them really could. And another thing that's mentioned in these, in the perfect sound forever article, uh, was that Steve was dating Lynn Perko of the dicks and sister double happiness at this time in San Francisco. I thought it was cool that Steve or that Keith Levine stopped by the, the studio. Imagine if he would have played on this record. You know what? He could have totally fit in on this record. Yeah, for sure. His guitar, uh, noodlings would totally fit. I was thinking, Ryan, I think we talked about this recently, you know, maybe with Onks, but, uh, Rob mentions Hermosa beach and it got me thinking, you know, I kind of, you forget that Steve, Rob and Scott were all from Hermosa. And and I believe Tim and Tom were from Manhattan beach, right, right next door. He mentions Miracosta high school where they all went, you know, Milo and Bill went there, the Nolte's. Earl Liberty. Yeah. Keith Morris, uh, Greg uh, and Raymond went there. You know, I know they started on new Alliance slovenly, but they were essentially on SST from 86 to 92. Mm-hmm. So they've got to be up there with the pups angst and maybe Zoogs, you know, that's just off the top of my head for the longest tenure on SST. Oh yeah. I, and you know, another thing occurred to me when you were ex- uh, just describing that is there another high school in the country in the 80s that produced that many musicians and great 
indie punk rock albums, except for perhaps like the school that everyone who was on Discord went to. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. You know, certainly Slovenly was one of the longest running bands from that original Hermosa Beach crew. Mm-hmm. If you want to call it that. I think these guys are a couple years younger than, you know, the Nolte's and and Greg Ginn and, and that kind of Bill and Milo. Maybe. I'm not sure about that. But, mm-hmm. you know, they were a band essentially for 12 years, Slovenly. Yeah. History Lesson Part 2. So, Ryan, this was released on CD, LP, and cassette with a bonus track on the CD that we referenced in the interview called Things Fall Apart. We'll get to, get to that when we go through these tracks. So the CD and cassette have a completely different track order from the LP. Uh, both Rob and Tom didn't really know why that was. Um, I'll explain a bit more about the sequencing as we go through the tracks. Uh, and the artwork also plays a, a role in the se- sequencing, I think. Just a, a guess on my part. Ah. Uh, I listened on CD, which you really do need to do for this for this release so you can hear that bonus track. And I did check for those who don't own a copy of this and the entire album, including the bonus track, is up on YouTube. Uh, and the preceding record, Repost, and the follow-up to this, Highway to Hanos, are up on streaming services also. So maybe this one will be at some point. Yeah, here's hoping. Okay, so basically... The CD where it starts is side two of the LP. Mm. So uh, I'm not sure if that was done intentionally or if just it was like a Henry Kaiser situation where the labels were put on the wrong sides, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But anyways, uh, so we're going to start with uh, the track running for public office. And so if you're listening along on the LP, start with that side. Uh, And all of the songs other than the two covers are credited to the whole band by the way. So running for public office, that rumbling bass line at the beginning and the way it kind of just pops to an open E is a total throwback to the Minutemen for me. Number one hit song on yeah. double nickels on it. I had the exact same note. It just, it, it made, give me the feels like they're paying tribute to D Boone. Yeah, I think so. To yeah. start off, to start off the record. I just, it couldn't start better for me. Yeah. Then a big snare crack, and we're off. Uh, Rob mentions in the interview that Tom tended to, you know, be more noty on the bass. And mm-hmm. I also recall from our interview with Tom that he played with his fingers, and Scott used a pick. So I'm going to say this is Tom on bass. Uh, as Tim said in the Perfect Sound Forever piece, they were using Fender guitars and, you know, really driving those tube amps on the, on the amps he mentions. And it sounds, you know, it sounds like it. The guitar tones are perfect on this record. Yeah. Basically what would be the chorus on this song? That part is like instrumental, except for the second part where Steve kind of mumbles some spoken word on top of it. When you listen to this, it's hard to imagine this without Steve. Like it's just so musically adventurous that his, his half kind of spoken rants really work well. Like you said earlier, almost the way you can't imagine how Saccharin Trust could have possibly worked as anything other than an instrumental band were it not for Jack Brewer. Yeah. You know, when this song goes into that second part, it's just totally balls out. You know, the feeling outside this part of America. Oh, yeah. I was, I was singing along to that for sure, man. It's totally... 
powerful chords and vocals just killer right off the hop on this one yeah then that huge minor chord another snare crack and we're back to the kind of start of the song again so another thing uh, about this album as mentioned earlier and also in the dave lang piece is that they spliced everything together so there's no dead spots between the tracks they all bleed into one another so the next track is Self-Pity Song. Again, for the reasons mentioned earlier, I'm going to say this is Tom on bass. He told me he played, uh, you know, on much of this record. And, and as I recall, when we spoke to him, he said he preferred to play bass, actually. I love the way the guitars interact on this song. It's almost like has a sonic youth feel at times. Yeah, there's an intense chord progression in the middle with some soloing over top that just rules hard, man. Yeah, very much a precursor to 90s indie rock. It's mm -hmm. pretty apparent that they worked a lot of their guitar parts out, you know, how they would play together. Yep. Uh, Steve's lyrics are just awesome, you know, very abstract, but perfect for Slovenly. I'm so precious, my head hurts from the inside. I am dilapidated. <laughs> okay then we've got one of uh two covers on the record uh neil young's don't cry no tears a favorite neil song of mine from his classic 75 album zuma with crazy horse it's the lead track on that record it's one that's for sure unrepresented in neil's catalog there's a killer live version on the archives volume 2 box set from a few years back uh live at the budokan with crazy horse 1976 slovenly really pulls this off it's a great cover for them, and I think Steve just knocks it out of the park. Mm -hmm. Well, Neil is not necessarily an amazing vocalist, but and that's why, like, well, I guess people would take issue with that comment, probably. But when you hear Slovenly do their turn on this track, you can kind of see why they would have a bit of a kinship with the vocalizations of Neil Young a bit, but oh, it doesn't. I... but it doesn't sound like Neil Young at all. I've heard people like at my work who only know keep on rocking in a free world. Like I've heard like uh, after the gold rush come on, you know. Well, I dreamed I saw the knights in armor. You know that song? Oh, yeah. Uh, I've heard the people complain. Like, why is this on the radio? This guy can't sing. Yeah. You well, know? I guess I'm not saying that Neil Young can't sing. I'm saying that it it too is an unconventional sounding voice yeah. and therefore I'm not surprised to see slovenly, you know, take a run at this track and do a great job. Yeah. Okay. Track four talking or talking machines on the LP. Uh, this track has some pretty gnarly slide guitar. Tom told me that was him on mm -hmm. bottleneck as a reference to Myers rum, which was a common elixir for the band at the time. <laughs> And, and and asparagus beer. Yeah, quite the combo. Uh, the the backing track for this is pretty insane. You know, along with Steve's lyrics, give this a pretty frenetic feel. There's some actual metal clanking on this track too, like mm -hmm. in the background. That, and I'm I'm just assuming that that's the reference to the talking machines. There's some clank. Uh, yeah. Kind of like the Metal Gods on Judas Priest, Metal Gods. There you go, man. All you got to do is mention Judas Priest a third time. Oops, I just did it right there. Uh, the lyrics, hyper phrases such as, 
Why do you think they call it Bush Street? Endearing reference to the gender they respect so much. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, track five. What's it called? Which you can hear someone shout during the kind of noodling at the start of this track. The guitar tones on this are very Biza-esque. Or maybe it's just the horns on this one that make me get the, a UCO vibe. Mm. Uh, first, we have Lynn, you know, go off solo. And then the whole, you know, the horns come in, the cruel horns, Guy Bennett, Jacob Cohen, and Lynn Johnston. And then there's another uh, solo. I, it sounds like a bass trombone, maybe. So guessing sounds- maybe Guy Bennett. Yeah, it sounds like a trombone, like someone's just turning out a slush pump in the studio here. <laughs> uh, yeah, all three of those guys are credited on this track. Tim also adds some background color on keys, or maybe it was Vetus. Lynn, I, you know, I feel like played a more prominent role in the band on their previous albums. I could be wrong about that, but I, I feel like he was on more tracks. Yeah, you mentioned that in the interview. Yeah. And Ra- it didn't really didn't really ring a bell for Rob, but I mean, really only on one track on this record. Yeah. So, so I mean, well, I mean, that's not entirely true. I suppose you could say he's on more than one track, but I mean, if he's on more than one track on any of the previous records, then that's a greater presence than on this one. Yeah. He's also credited as more of an auxiliary player. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at any promo fo- photos of Slav and Lee, it's the five, the five dudes. Yeah. So I'm not sure if Lynn was necessarily considered a full-time member of the band. I can't remember, you know, if he toured with them. I, I think he probably did. Uh, track six, You Cease to Amaze Me. This is the one, you know, that starts with Rob. And you can totally tell that it's Rob, too. Yeah, I thought that one sucked, man. And then someone shouts, <laughs> erase it. Uh, the call and response guitar bass lick that, you know, that starts the song it has a real off-kilter feel to it. The way the lick is played and the way they, they'll sometimes play it in unison, sometimes not, sometimes mm-hmm. in different keys, so it's out of tune. There's some effects on the guitars. It's really cool. And then it ends with some extended feedback. Yeah, it's just some more of that sinuous counterpoint melodies. These instruments are, they're just going hog wild, but it all hangs together. Yeah. So if you're listening on LP, that's the end of side two. So side one would start with the next song, which is the title track, We Shoot for the Moon. This one to me sounds very Meat Puppets-esque. And to me also you can hear the Neil influence. Like the way the guitars are distorted in a really overdriven way is, you know, really Neil Young and Crazy Horse, Russ Never Mm. Sleeps era. For me, Steve's the star on this one. He shows, you know, what Slovenly fans already know, that he can really sing also in a classical sense when he chooses to. Uh, And the scream he does at the end of this song is just total perfection. Yeah. It is a great opening track for the album, which might be why it's on side one of the LP, because it does stick out as like a very, it's like, really announcing something but on the cd it's in the middle yeah so it's odd yeah i like i, I kind of like the, the cd running order but maybe that's just because that's what i've been listening to it on me too i i have i take no issue with either running order i guess my point is i could really understand why we shoot for the moon would be side one 
track one. I don't know. I don't think you put the title track in the pole position. Well, we'll have to take that up with John Golden, perhaps. <laughs> okay. A Year With No Head is next. Another cover and another great choice for the band. Written by Martin Brahma and Rick Goldstraw in their band Blue Orchids. Uh, the song is on their 1982 debut. Uh, their full length, The Greatest Hit, Money Mountain, which came out on Rough Trade. Uh, the band was formed by Martin in Manchester in 1979 after he quit the fall following their debut live at the witch trials. Mm. I would, you know, I was marginally aware of this band to be honest, but I certainly did not know they had reformed in 2016 and oh. have released several albums since then, including one last year and another one coming out this summer. Yeah, that I didn't know. They're definitely on my radar now. Uh, the original of this is super cool. I honestly had not heard it before this week. The keyboards on that one really carry the melody. Uh, I absolutely love Slovenly's cover of it. It has a real haunting quality. They pull it off perfectly. I, I did ask Tom about Slovenly covers, and he told me uh, the two on this record he thinks were mostly br brought in by Steve. He said, of course, we all loved the bands, and I think he picked those ones. We did a few covers we never recorded, like The Minutemen's Jesus and Tequila. Uh, and these next two won't be any surprise to you, Ryan. Joy Division's Transmission mm. and Television's Foxhole. Oh, yeah. He said, I, I know for sure we avoided doing any hits by bands. Like, big hits. Except, Ryan, of course. Uh, yeah. The, the Doobie Brothers. The Doobies. <laughs> yeah, of course. Ay, ay, ay. Uh, the next one is Spy Surf. Pretty awesome descending riff that they do on this one. Uh, this one might have my favorite lyrics. Please understand, I am a generic ignoramus. I have no earth-shattering interests. I haven't much interest in literature. I haven't much interest in anything. I like to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Total firehose vibes for me on this track in a great way too. Yeah. Again, the guitar tones are just unbelievably cool. Mm -hmm. I, I remember Tom telling me when we had him on for repost uh, that part of their songwriting process was to stitch different parts together. And this track to me has that quality. There's nothing I'd rather do. I am not an aspiring musicologist. <laughs> Tom, Tom also says in the Dave Lang piece that Steve was very influenced by David Thomas. David, oh yeah. David Byrne, Mark E. Smith. Ian Curtis, Lou Reed. He oh, also yeah. he also lists some writers like Celine. I'm not sure who that is. Uh, Raymond Carver, uh, Bukowski. Uh, you know, so he says the vocal parts were more like prose than song lyrics, and I think that's how Steve developed his singing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with all that. Yeah, great people to ha share a kinship with too when it comes to lyrics and singing. Yeah. Okay, the next one's super inter interesting. No Unlawful Sex. This, to me, is a throwback to Tom and Tim's days experiment experimenting with field recordings and tape loops. If you recall, Ryan, they both went to Holland after high school to study avant-garde and electronic music at the Institute of Sonology. Mm -hmm. Tom talks about that in our interview with him. So Tom told me this was a free-form tape piece that I, that I recorded on my amazing new Fostex four-track cassette recorder walking down Market Street in San Francisco with Steve. Uh, he says, 
inspired by Steve's walk to work at the time at a bank. It was a linear recording that took 30 minutes or so. So you can hear, Ryan, there's a, an accordion player, someone playing a violin maybe, someone kind of crooning, that, and that part sounds like it's manipulated a bit, the crooning, and then this street preacher that Rob talks about, and he's just hollering about righteousness and unlawful sex. Tom, Tom told me these were all street performers. They, they recorded them individually along Market Street, one of each of them on the four tracks, and then they mixed them all playing at the same time, kind of fading and panning it all together. It's a super fun interlude. I just love it. Yep. Uh, the next track, track 11, She Was Bananas. Once I had a friend who looked like an animal... She was not wonderful. She was awful. She blew her nose in my mother's handkerchief. I told my mother and she said, that's all right. (laughs) (laughs) This song makes a lot more sense when you learn that these lyrics, you know, were found and seem to be taken from a child's homework. Yeah, yeah. This is one that easily could have been an instrumental that Steve had, you know, the brilliant idea to to put these lyrics on top of. Oh, and also, as Rob says in the interview, this one has Steve on bass. Track 12 is A Warm Night. This one, for me, is kind of, has, you know, the quality of just a nostalgic rocker. And I think Rob mentions in the interview when he, when he listens to this one, it makes him nostalgic for San Francisco. Here I am with no background singers. That's okay. They couldn't help me. Sitting semi-sober, moderately bored, unreasonably hopeful. And then we've got the track, Electro. Tom told me this was a piece he and Tim worked out together uh, to use as a segue. I'd say it works pretty well. It's just a really nice dual guitar piece. Again, for me, to get these tones and the feedback at the end of the piece, they would have had to have those amps pretty well cranked oh yeah so loud yeah and that's the end of the the record uh and then we go to the cd bonus track things Mm -hmm. fall apart so in the perfect sound forever interview steve says vetus encouraged them to make this track which is about 20 minutes long tom said they wanted to use all of the time they could on a cd and they did this cd is an hour long yeah Again, in the Dave Lang interview, Tom calls this a fun freakout and said Vetus was cutting and splicing two-inch tape on the fly. Steve said, Vetus was right there with us, gleefully cutting and splicing tape, tweaking, repurposing already recorded drum tracks to be used as jumping off points and just galvanizing a joyful and creative environment. So the song starts off with some moody keys, some sax again. Some guitar soloing. Tom told me the child saying, Daddy is Scott's young daughter, Emma. Mm. After two minutes of that, some drums come in with kind of a dubby bass line. Yeah. Lots of reverb on the drums. And then this is where Steve comes in. Time beats the hell out of all of us. And he, with the refrain, things fall apart. Despite the heart. Yeah. So that's where the the song title comes from. It has a total post-punk jaw wobble oh yeah vibe for me and every time it comes back like it it comes back throughout the the splicings it gets better and better 
Yeah, well, it gets more dubby almost with right? the production. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some various, you know, glitches thrown in. Uh, and then a, a new piano part comes in pretty, you know, it's pretty simple. Something like a beginner would play on the piano. Sounds like a like a Western saloon piano out of tune, some plunking around. Maybe some plinking? Plinking, maybe. Can you plink on a piano? I don't know. I think you can plunk and plink on a piano, but you can only plink behind the nut on a guitar. Well, you could plink if you lifted up a piano and plinked on the... <laughs> Stop it. Move on. Okay. Uh, like you mentioned, it goes back into the dubby bass part. Around the 7 minute 22 um, second mark, uh, they kind of go into Neil Young's Look Out For My Love from his 1978 album Comes A Time. Mm. Pretty tough to pick out because it's just Steve singing or speaking the lyrics with some noise behind him. It doesn't really do the melody of the original. That's the part with lots of delay on the vocals, hey? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then it, it eventually goes to full acapella of just Steve. And then around the eight minute, 50 second mark, it gets really cool. We have a live toxic shock track called yeah. Fat. Fat is the name of the song. Stick your finger down your throat and puke it all up. So this would have been, I assume, Tom on bass, Scott on guitar, Steve on vocals, and Bruce Lawson on drums. And it sounds like maybe some keyboards too. So they, I'm again assuming they would have been in high school when this was recorded. You can at a, hear... At a talent show or something maybe. Maybe. You can hear some clapping and cheering at the end of the song and a girl shouts, what about happy birthday? And now we're at the halfway mark of this crazy track. Back into the dubby bass part, this time with even more reverb. Steve comes back in. I am right now oblivious to most things. I feel bad for the way I have high ideals. It kind of plays out on some keys, the song. The cruel horns make another appearance. And then the whole crazy affair ends with Steve doing the, the loop-de-loo, even though he doesn't want to do the loop-de-loo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the whole, it's kind of, here we go, loop de loo, mashed with the hokey pokey, but then it ends with all of a sudden we die. Yep. Okay, so here's how the artwork kind of plays into this for me, Ryan. Tom told me Tim did the front cover art, and if you'll notice, it there's it said it does say slovenly, slovenly on the cover, uh, but no album title. Uh, and as mentioned in the interview, Steve's original idea for the title was we shoot for the moon and jack off in the closet a quote from a charles bukowski book of correspondence mm. between bukowski and canadian poet al purdy and then the artwork on the back ryan is scott's uh i'm thinking maybe the bottle is a bottle of myers rum perhaps so tom confirmed that the idea at least on the lp was to make the front and back cover interchangeable with the slot for the record on top of the lp oh so maybe that's why you know the track listing is maybe interchangeable that's legit yeah the jacket has no info on on it at all on the lp it's all written on the the label yeah yeah the flip side has the half moon from the cover on it uh, the CD actually has some different art on the back. It almost looks like some of Carl Rossler's underwater photography, maybe. Yeah, it looks like coral or something. Yeah. The panel insert on the CD has the members' names 
the credits, like the dedications that we talk about in the interview with Rob, a short thank you list, SST, our families, Firehose and Devo, who I assume was the, drove the van and maybe did front of house on those, on the haircut and James Worthy tours. Yeah. Tippy gets a thank you. I'm not sure who that is. Everyone who let us play and Emma, which who I assume would be Scott's daughter. Ballot result? Yeah, man. Ballot result. So there's a lot on here that I love, but I'm going to go with either running for public office or we shoot for the moon itself. Yeah. But, but, it, but I could be convinced otherwise. There's a lot of great ones. Yeah. I, mine were running for public office, self-pity song. You caught, you cease to amaze me. We shoot for the moon a year with no head <laughs> spy surf. So like half the record, more than half the record. Yeah. This album is just so killer, man. Mm-hmm. Like, geez, man. And, and the production, like, look, just looking back, I, I mean, there's way more than this going back further, but that Trotsky album, Baby, uh, the Angst record, the use... Cry, cry, put this up against Cry for Happy? Yeah. That's like a one-two punch right there, baby. Yeah, this is a crazy good record. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, you pick. Um, You know what? Let's go with running for public office because we both ha- got the same Minutemen vibes. Sure. When we heard it. Why not? Sure. Uh, but honestly, like, I get, uh, you know, I'm going to resist the urge to rant about how this record is not available, but it's so good, man. Yeah. Don't yeah. resist. Don't eh, resist. No, nah, I'll resist. <laughs> <laughs> you know what they say? Resistance is fertile. That's right. Yeah. All right. Hey, Ryan, thanks to Rob for being on the show and thanks for Tom totally. to Tom for chipping in with some stuff. It was yeah. great to kind of get the, the scoop on this record. It would have totally. driven me nuts if I didn't know what was going on and in <laughs> no unlawful sex or, or, uh, things fall apart or bananas or bananas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ryan, what's next week? Oh, dude, next week, one of my faves, it's SST. 210, the Volcano Sun's Farst LP, one of the very first records I bought that had SST on it, and I just bought it to give it a try. Love it. And we've got a special guest. You bet we do. Peter Prescott's on the show. All right. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.